Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In the West, there seems to be a push towards vegetarianism and veganism. But that's just a tiny blip in a bigger upward trend in meat-eating around the world. That's bad news for the environment, but in a narrower sense, it's good for people. And a century ago, one in eight girls born in France was named Marie. Now that number is one in a hundred. Demographers love these kinds of trends. They reveal much more than census data do about how France is secularizing and globalizing. But first... Pakistan is poised to accept a hefty bailout from the International Monetary Fund. Again, the over-indebted country has just sought its 22nd loan from the IMF. In a speech while opening a hospital last week, Prime Minister Imran Khan laid the blame on his predecessors. He blamed uh, Pakistan's economic predicament on the previous government. Uh, He particularly... uh, fingered the amount of debt uh, that the previous government had uh, racked up. Simon Cox is The Economist's emerging markets editor. And he pointed out to Pakistanis that fixing this problem would require some hardship uh, in the short term. Um, He also reassured them that Pakistan was, in reality, a rich country and that things would get better eventually. And and how have Pakistanis responded to, to news of this loan? So there's some uh, dismay, some disgruntlement, uh, a little bit uh, of surprise. Um, Imran Khan, during campaigning for the elections last year, um, said he wouldn't turn to the IMF, although most economists knew that it would be inevitable. He also uh, made large claims for uh, instituting uh, a new kind of welfare state in Pakistan that would take better care of the poor. So that sits um, at odds with the uh, austerity that Pakistan is now going to have to endure, although one should say that the IMF program is uh, attempting to make some provision for the poor. Um, It's certainly been causing a big stir in parliament, uh, and the opposition in particular have been accusing the government of selling Pakistan out They've been accusing uh, Pakistan of um, allowing the IMF to dictate terms. And one particular point of contention is that uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan shook up his economic team over the last couple of weeks. Now, the head of the the central bank uh, is a Pakistan national, but also a former official at the IMF. So um, some critics had a field day with this. Right. So let's roll back a little bit here. How did Pakistan's economy get into such a mess in the first place? So Pakistan's been a regular um, customer, if you like, for the IMF. And uh, it took a loan in 2013, um, which actually went quite well. And so uh, around 2016, the economy looked to have stabilized. 
Um, but from then on, um, the previous government ran some unsustainable policies. Uh, in particular, they kept the exchange rate uh, too expensive, which uh, hurt the competitiveness of Pakistan's exports. Uh, and they also um, ran too large budget deficits. There was too much spending, not enough tax collecting. So there was a big export-import gap, and there was a big uh, revenue and expenditure gap for the government. The, the economy, we should say, you know, grew pretty well during that period, but it had these two unsustainable gaps. And eventually, um, investors you know, ceased to be willing to finance these gaps, and the economies have to then live within their means. So it, it sounds like some kind of intervention was was needed, and I, I know uh, with with Pakistan as a as you say regular customer of the IMF, why are so many Pakistanis opposed to to their presence, their 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 lending? Well, this is a common problem that the IMF faces. Uh, countries pursue unsustainable economic policies; uh, they live beyond their means. Now, the IMF at that point. Uh, will offer a loan to ease this transition. And so the lending will come with conditions attached uh, so that the lending isn't misused uh, to just buy more time. Now, those conditions um, are often quite painful. Uh, They often require uh, cuts in spending, uh, increases in taxes, often a devaluation of the exchange rate, which obviously makes imports more expensive. So none of that is very popular. Uh, The question is whether um, if the IMF wasn't there, um, would the situation be even worse? Uh, and typically the answer is yes. Well, it can't be the case that uh, Pakistan can only turn to uh, the IMF for money. Are there not other lenders? Yes. So uh, what's sort of different this time, if you like, is that there are an array of uh, other lenders that the uh, the Pakistani authorities have uh, leaned on. Uh, Saudi Arabia has given quite a lot of money and also allowed Pakistan to defer payments on oil. Um, The United Arab Emirates has stepped in, uh, and also China, of course. And for a while, uh, the government thought they could make do just with these friends. Uh, They wouldn't have to deal with the IMF as well. Uh, But uh, the money came short. Basically, it fills about half the gap, and they've had to turn to the IMF for the other half. And how likely is it then on the sort of 22nd go-round, is Pakistan uh, to, to actually stick to what the IMF suggests this time around? So it's somewhat unlikely. Um... No one particularly wants to cut Pakistan off. You know, it's a country that's in a very unstable geopolitical region. It's a country that has all sorts of uh, its own internal uh, instability issues. It's a country of 200 million people with nuclear weapons. Um, And, you know, one of the friends it's had in the past, uh, although friend is a strong word, is the United States, which has provided an awful lot of uh, economic and military assistance. And so often um, in previous uh, deals with the IMF, The IMF has requested things that Pakistan has then uh, rather reluctantly, partially agreed to. And typically, the IMF uh, lets it off. Uh, It issues what's called a waiver. So it says, you know, the conditions that we attach to the loan uh, have been waived. And uh, that's become a sort of a game that gets played between the two sides. Now, this is a new government. Um, It's got a good team uh, in place, a good economic team in place. You know, they have their own reputations at stake. So there's probably a higher probability this time than on previous occasions. But um, I'd be surprised if, you know, every uh, item in this agreement gets adhered to. But Pakistan doesn't see the IMF as a, a sort of lender of last resort. It's just a lender. I'm wondering the degree to which its existence and this, you know, giving the money and you can take the advice if you like kind of practice disincentivizes good fiscal discipline. So the IMF often finds itself in a a difficult position. It doesn't want to be held responsible for 
triggering a crisis. It doesn't want to finally cut a country off and send it into the abyss. Uh, One can think of other examples like uh, Argentina, where the IMF became heavily invested in the success of its program and ended up throwing uh, good money after bad. Uh, And in Pakistan's case, uh, it often turns a blind eye to uh, foot dragging by the authorities or only partial implementation of the conditions that the IMF has asked for, precisely because it doesn't want to create instability and cause trouble. And you're right, that does create uh, an inevitable uh, political game uh, between the two sides. Um, And uh, we'll see how that plays out again uh, with this latest loan to Pakistan. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In rich countries, people go vegan for January. They pour oat milk over their breakfast cereal. But in the world as a whole, the consumption of meat and animal products is rising. And while it may be bad for the environment, it seems it's good for many people. Well, we know there are simply a lot more animals around. There are a lot more livestock animals around, and they're bigger. Joel Budd is our social policy editor. There's a lot of talk in rich countries of veganism and vegetarianism becoming fashionable, but there's no evidence that the diets of people in wealthy countries are changing. And meanwhile, the diets of people in poorer countries definitely are changing and becoming much more meaty. So how much more meat than on balance will the whole world be eating? Well, the world is eating about 2% more animal products every year. Total consumption is growing by about 2%. Meanwhile, the global population is growing by about 1% a year. So it's a sort of twice as fast as population growth. And what's, what's been driving that? Mostly it's not a cultural change. It's simply uh, more people live in cities, more people are wealthier. Most people in the world who don't eat very much meat, it's not because of any cultural or religious reason. It's just because they can't afford it. And I suspect it's enormously populous countries like China and India that are driving a lot of this? Yes. Well, so far it's been China. So, of course, China is the world's most populous country. And in the early 1960s, the average Chinese person ate almost no meat. Uh, it was something like four kilograms a year. And pork is is the sort of the favorite meat in China. And since the early 1960s, pork production in China has increased 30 times. It's the favorite meat. And as China gets richer, they're eating more of it. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. When I lived here 20 years ago, people ate a lot less meat, but now it's a, a big thing. And almost half the world's pigs live in China. About half a billion are raised in China every year. So I went to a pig farm on the coast of Fujian, on the beach, and it was a kind of small commercial farm, about 150 pigs. Uh, 
So the farmer I met, Mr. He, he isn't actually going to be the beneficiary of China's growing taste for meat because his small farm is exactly the kind of place that is going to get wiped out by a really serious animal disease that has arrived in China uh, last summer called African swine fever. It's uh, not harmful to humans, but it's incredibly dangerous to pigs. And once it's in a country like China, it probably will never be eradicated. Well, what, what effects does, does swine fever have then on, on the appetite for pork in China? Well, China's already had to cull more than a million pigs, so prices are much, much higher. Um, there's some evidence that people are a bit scared. When the government says it's safe to eat, they're not sure they trust the government. And it feeds into a broader story about how pork is very tasty, but it's quite high in fat. It's not the healthiest meat. And you see some research that things like beef and chicken uh, are seen as healthier protein. But a, a place with half of the pigs in the world, I mean, the, the bottom isn't going to entirely fall out of the pork market. That's true. It is still the favourite meat. It's the party meat. It's what you eat to celebrate. But, you know, if these diseases carry on, uh, we may have reached peak pork. So, Joel, if China has reached peak pork, what's behind the predictions that the number of animals is going to rise? So it's mostly going to be driven in future by... South Asia, especially India, and by sub-Saharan Africa. So both in South Asia and Africa, people eat very, very little meat and very, very few animal products in general. So in the rich world, we get about a quarter of our daily calories from animal products on average. In Africa, it's only 7%. So that doesn't have to increase very much for the total consumption from Africa to increase hugely because we're expecting enormous population growth in Africa and quite high population growth also in South Asia. So if you go to a market in somewhere like Dakar, the capital of Senegal, you'll see a huge number of chickens being sold for not very much money. My name's Alpha. I've sold 29 chickens so far today. A chicken costs around 3,000 francs, which isn't a lot of money for an average Senegalese family. People are eating more chicken than 15 years ago. It's good for people's health. So why chickens in particular? It seems to be because chickens are pretty easy to cook. And when people move from the countryside to cities, their work lives change. They may well work more outside the home and they may well work longer hours. And when they cook themselves, they want to cook something that's fairly quick and fairly easy. And that is likely to be chicken rather than a joint of beef. Right, so this, this story, all told, is, is just one of a richer world wanting to have more of the rich world's things, and that often has negative consequences for the environment. This is no different. No, that's right. From a global environmental point of view, or indeed from a regional environmental point of view, it's not great that people are eating more meat. It's especially not great if they're moving from pork to beef, because cows are responsible for much higher greenhouse gas emissions than, than pigs are. It may well be good for people's health, though. How so? Well, because we do know from controlled experiments in schools in poor countries that if you feed people more milk, more meat, more eggs, 
then they do appear to grow faster than if you don't. And a lot of people in poor countries are still quite severely undernourished. And meat is not the only way that you can improve somebody's diet, but it's a very convenient way. Well, it just seems to run counter to the kind of, you know, the, the narrative in Western countries, which is you're eating too much meat, pull it back. This is bad for your health, bad for your cancer rates and heart disease and what have you. What's the sort of uh, equilibrium position of the world, do you think? Yes, I don't know what the equilibrium position is. Maybe there is a country somewhere that eats the perfect amount of meat. And it's, yes, it's it, sure, it's, it's probably healthier for people in highly developed countries to eat less. Whether they're getting that message, though, is a, is a different matter. I did look quite carefully at American and British data because there's a lot of talk in America and Britain of veganism becoming fashionable or flexitarianism becoming fashionable. And I found no evidence, really, that diets are changing. And in fact, at the moment, people are eating more beef, which is probably just because they feel a bit wealthier. What's a flexitarian? A flexitarian is somebody who eats meat, but not as much as they could, not as much as they used to. Maybe they only eat meat twice a week or something like that. And are, are you a flexitarian? No, I'm a vegetarian. Uh, so have you found all of this absolutely horrifying then? Well, I suppose I, I don't believe in imposing my sort of personal ideological views on everybody else. <laughs> I've, no, I've, I, I became a vegetarian at the age of 10. I think, by the way, that's one reason I'm a little bit skeptical about the, the rise of vegetarianism in the West is because I pay fairly close attention to this and I have seen several great vegetarian revivals since I became <laughs> a vegetarian. So I suppose I become less and less convinced every time I hear of a new one. And so you went digging and, to the contrary, the world's just eating more meat. It is, it is. Joel, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. What's in a name? Or, as the French say, I think, qui a-t-il dans son nom? In France, first names have come to signify a lot more than just parents' wishes. Two new studies show how they reflect deeper social change, social change that came to a head last year during prime time. Well, last year, there's a talk show in France, which is very popular, evening talk show. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. And one of the presenters is Hapsatu C, who is a well-known uh, French presenter. And she was attacked on uh, live TV, effectively, by a reactionary commentator who said that her name was an insult to France. He said that French names should be the names of saints, and that her mother would have done a better job if she called her Corinne. Obviously, this was, you know, <laughs> extraordinarily provocative and offensive to, to Habsa Tusi, and she, in the end, quit the show altogether in, in, in disgust. I mean, it's surprising that someone should feel so strongly about names. Well, the French have had this very long tradition. Babies could only be registered under a name of a Catholic saint or at least a, a figure from ancient history. And that dates to a decree actually introduced by Napoleon back in 1803. They, they relaxed the rules more recently. In, in 1993, they allowed a wider selection of names, but it has left a tradition where you still have to have approval uh, from those who register the, the birth of a child, and some of those names can still be rejected. For example, the parents of a baby 
who, whom, they, whom they wanted to register uh, under the name Nutella uh, after the chocolate spread were told firmly that that was not acceptable. So it took all the way until 1993 for this Napoleonic era rule to, to, to be changed. I mean, I, if, if Nutella isn't uh, an acceptable name, I mean, what is? How, how much have the rules changed? Well, it's very interesting. I think that the greatest change in a way has been a, a shift towards what's known as Anglo-Saxon names or names that pretty much come from American popular culture. So you have Dylan, Jordan, Kevin even are common names for boys. Well, and what about from Napoleon's era to now? I mean, the American names that you mentioned feel like a much more recent change in things. Longer term, how have things changed? Well, I think that there has been over decades what one of the authors of a new study has called the de-Christianization of French society that's reflected through names. So the predominance of names of saints has faded and you've got the rise of a much greater variety of names, some of them being these American imports. Well, is it is it just a, a, a Coca-Cola-ization of, of now names that all of this stuff is just coming from America? Well, it's interesting because France bans the collection of ethnic or religious census data. So it's actually quite difficult to measure the effects of immigration, second and third generation immigration. And so some of these demographers have used names as a sort of proxy for ethnic background and use them precisely as a measure of social change in France. Another big factor has been immigration to France from North Africa, where France used to have colonial territories. And if you look at the name like Mohammed, for example, it's risen sixfold in France since 1960. But Almost as interesting as that is the fact that over the generations, those families who are descended from North African immigrants tend to follow the same trend towards more global names. So if you look at their grandchildren who are born in France, the, the grandfather might be called Mohammed, but the grandson is likely to have uh, a name which is much less identifiable with North Africa, like Yanis or a granddaughter called Sarah. And how has that shift gone down, uh, you know, among the fraction of French society that is that is anti-immigrant, that is anti-anything coming in and, and messing with tradition? Well, clearly, if you look at the sort of extremist fringe, there have been comments, certainly by leaders like Marine Le Pen, who think that you should adopt a French name as part of a sort of process of integration. But in a funny way, the fact that you have the third generation of North African immigrants actually adopting a very similar pattern to, you know, French families themselves. And that's to say, adopting more global names could be seen as, as, a, as a marker of, of integration anyway. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, if you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.